Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And we're in New York City. It's the eve of the Pre-Seed Consortium, Pancreatic Cancer Early Detection Meeting. And I'm sitting down here at our host hotel at the Roger with some special friends. One who's been on the podcast already, but the lovely, terrific trio of ladies as Christina's laughing, from the University of Nebraska Medical Center, the Buffett Cancer Center, the people who run the early detection clinic for pancreatic cancer, the ones who get the job done, who, who do all the hard work, Christina Hoy, Kirsten Eberly, and Suzanne Wessling. Thank you, ladies, for joining me on the podcast. Thank yeah, you, Dino. Thanks. We're so happy to be here. I know, because you guys flew in yesterday, day early, well, two days early, technically. I guess you could have flown in today. But the flights aren't that good on the weekends from Omaha to New York. They're better <laughs> on the weekdays. No. So you guys came in early, experiencing New York, here for the Pre-Seed Consortium meeting. What do you guys think of New York so far? Because this is your first time. This is all of our oh, first times. Oh, None of us time. have ever been here before. First yeah. time yeah. ever in the yeah. city. Yes. Yeah. What do you guys think? We're stoked to be here. We're loving we everything that we're seeing. We love New York. There's t-shirts, Suzanne, that say we love New York. I, you have to get one. I, I am get one. I'm buying one before I leave town. You need one. You need one. It's a little bit different than Omaha. It's a little bit oh, different. Yeah. Quite a bit different. There's a lot. I mean, but yeah. Omaha, I, I would tell you this, ladies. I've been going there now, I think, six years. Six years. At least five. Could be six. I don't know when I first landed in Omaha, quite honestly. I think it was like 2013, maybe. But Omaha is, has really developed and evolved over that time. I mean, there's a lot going on. But I think things in the Midwest, well, in, in Nebraska, tend to shut down about nine o'clock. <laughs> I think it's a little bit of a different pace. Yeah. A little yeah. bit of a different pace. But yeah. Things do shut down earlier. Yeah. So... You guys are really good friends with a good friend of mine who's been on the podcast. He's a big part of the team there at UNMC who can't make the meeting this weekend because she's about to give birth, Dr. Kelsey Clutie, right. who did her residency here in New York. Yeah. And my joke with her when she moved out to Omaha, well, she lives in the Lincoln area, but I said, how do you get good pizza at like 10 o'clock? And she just chuckles. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> you don't. So um, thank you guys for being on the podcast. Christina, thank you for being on the podcast again. Thank you to Suzanne and Kirsten for being on the podcast. Uh, we love sharing stories of inspiration and what you guys have been able to do in Nebraska is pretty amazing. And, and we were, you know, we were part of, we, we've invested a lot of money. Project Purple has in Nebraska at the program there led by Dr. Hollingsworth, who can't make it this weekend as well. Um, and you know, also Dr. Clutie leading the charge there for pancreatic cancer. But you guys run the clinic and that's really what we wanna talk about today because you guys are having tremendous success. So before we get started into that, what I always love to do, and Christina, you've been on the podcast, so you know this, is just give our audience a little bit of your background. And I always like to tell our guests that you can go as high level as you want, or you can go as deep as you want in terms of your background and where, what got you to where you are today in terms of your position at UNMC. So we'll start, we'll go 
to my left and then we'll go to my right. So Christina, you're first. Okay. So uh, I have been pretty much strictly with the University of Nebraska my entire career. Um, and I came from organ transplantation. I worked in liver and intestinal transplant for the university. And under that umbrella, um, helped to start a pancreas clinic with um, several different disciplines there and then decided to go back to school. Um, for my doctorate in nursing practice. And then the last year of my program um, sort of fell into this research and this study um, as it was sort of coming off the ground. Um, and so I was fortunate enough to meet Kirsten and join the team with Tony and Kelsey there at UNMC. Um, and we quickly became very busy and um, decided that we uh, were able to add um, so I reached back into my transplant days out to Suzanne, who I worked with in transplant, and we brought her on board. Um, so yeah, we're doing great. And you just gave her, you just gave Suzanne an out because she didn't want to really talk on the podcast. So <laughs> that was a lead-in. That was a lead-in. So perfect. So Suzanne, not that Kristen didn't give you too much of an out, so. Um, no, I went to school at UNMC. I'm a UNMC alumni. I worked in transplant, liver, um, small bowel, kidney, pancreas transplant for nine years. And then I moved into um, the surgical services where I worked in pre-op and PACU, which is recovery. And um, kept running into Christina in the halls of the hospital and said, what kind of a job do you have? What do you, how do you get a job like that? And um, so, yeah, she contacted me when they needed another nurse. And I'm, enjoy I'm enjoying myself. Awesome. I, I love it. Awesome. So I'm originally from Omaha. Um, and after I had graduated, I... I went and got my post or my PhD actually at Iowa State. And there is a lot of agriculture and animal research there. So I, I did like infectious disease and large animals and totally like switch gears when I graduated and came back then to Omaha um, and started with in Tony's lab, I guess, a little over two years ago. Um and so it was kind of a dream come true coming back to like cancer research. And that's that was always kind of my end goal. Um, and so, yeah, I've been with Tony for two years at UNMC and um, yeah, just really getting into cancer research and the early detection program. Awesome. So let's talk about the program. So right now, currently, there are two uh, nurses up front, Suzanne and Christina. You guys meet with the patients or prospective patients. And, and for audience listening at home, this is a high-risk clinic. So this is patient population that have a high risk. And how are you guys defining the term high risk? Because I think people get confused sometimes when they hear like high risk, like what yeah. is high risk? Yeah. So, um, you know, we don't want to scare anybody and, and, you know, tell them that they're super high risk to develop pancreas cancer in their lifetime, but higher than the average population. Mm -hmm. And so um, our study at UNMC defines those populations as people with a family history of pancreas cancer, um, people with a germline genetic mutation that's linked or associated with a higher risk of pancreas cancer, people who have chronic pancreatitis or cysts in their pancreas that are being monitored serially with imaging over 
over time. Um, and then people, um, you know, this last cohort is one that we're really trying to pay attention to lately, this new onset of diabetes, anyone diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in the last few years. So I want to back up a little bit. So um, family history, how are you guys de defining family history? Is it um, parent, sibling, uh, which I guess would be considered immediate family? Or is it grandparent, aunts, uncles, cousins? So we are, uh, we're enrolling people. Uh, that family history is further defined as two or more first through third degree relatives. So that takes it out even to like great grandparents. So if you have two relatives in any of that first through third degree relation, uh, we invite you to participate in the study or even just one first degree relative diagnosed with pancreas cancer under the age of 60. And do they have to have a genetic mutation or is it just familial in the sense that, hey, you have a lot of people in your family? Yeah. So either or. And we see a lot of people with both more than one family member or a family member diagnosed at a young age and a germline genetic mutation. We see a lot of people with just a genetic mutation that's associated with a higher risk of pancreas cancer, but no family history. And we also see people with a family history, more than one you know, family member and no genetic mutation that we know of. So let's talk about what's involved and maybe I'll ask Suzanne to answer this question. So someone comes to the clinic, Suzanne, what does that look like? I mean, I know there's typically a phone call or they go online and they find the information and they call you guys, Right. either you um, or Christina are answering. They reach out to us for the study. Um, they call us, we go through a screening process. Um, of over the phone? Over the phone of eligibility. Then they come into the clinic and and meet with us personally. And blood is eventually drawn depending right. on if they have uh, Yeah, genetics. we do a, a questionnaire, symptoms questionnaire. We look into their background, like smoking history, alcohol history, just gauging, um, expo lifetime exposure. We do a height and weight and then we draw blood. And is this routinely done Initially, so like an intake, and then you're seeing these people every six months, every year. What are you guys doing there in, in Nebraska? Every six months. Every six months. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I want to shift here. We're going to go to Kirsten here because you're not dealing with the patients up front. No. but So you're in the back end yeah. kind of coordinating yeah. and kind of analyzing this yeah. information that so comes into the clinic. We, um, you know, have a pretty smooth system, I think, between the nurses and like the lab staff, myself and the technician with me. Um, you know, once the, they, they have seen the patient, um, done their questionnaire and blood draw, you know, pretty quickly we, we, we get that blood um, and process it, which involves just spinning the blood down to get that plasma and serum layers. Um, and then really we're at that time, just getting it, um, into the freezer, banking it, um, you know, storing it away until, yeah, we want to go back to it at a later time, um, for various assays that we have in the lab. Um, uh, and we've gone back to some already, and those patients are ones that, um, you know, there might be some red flag that we think of or 
they're this extensive family history that, you know, might might be interesting right now. But a lot of it's just freezing that and banking it at this point. And I mean, we mentioned this on a previous podcast, so probably air before this podcast with Dr. Grossberg. And, and I've mentioned this before with other clinicians. All these efforts are an attempt to build a roadmap in essence, right? Like yeah. we want to try to find yeah. how the people, you know, this high risk population. Now we don't wish any of them to get the disease, but we know statistically that there will be a small percentage that some of them will get the disease. If we can build this map and have blood prior to someone yeah. getting sick and having information about height, weight, and other information in terms of what their life looks like, we we're building a map right. and when those triggers occur then we can kind of identify things that are the reason for getting the disease yeah. or why they got the disease yeah we we say all the time that those patients that are going to end up um developing pancreatic cancer are invaluable because this is something no one has and no one's done that they can go back a year or two before they actually had a diagnosed disease and say what was happening clinically um, that they were reporting that maybe should have been a red flag or even then especially in their blood, like what was changing in their blood at that time that we could have picked up and measured and we just don't have that detection, um, like blood detection, you know, method available right now that for other diseases, you know, we might have like even a heart condition like we know because of something you can pick up in the blood and it's the same thing that we want to be able to do before we actually have a diagnosis be able to measure yeah so much of like people i mean for our audience listening at home we've got a pretty vast audience but like you know people have high cholesterol right mm -hmm. take a, a right. medication or right. people who have heart disease or high blood pressure in their family they take statins or right. medication but it's because you know you measure this xyz compound or whatever in the blood and like you know that's what they have and we just don't have that for pancreatic cancer yeah that's what's so exciting about this effort i think is in terms of pancreas cancer there you know there's there's been a huge effort in the past and continues to be on when we find pancreas cancer we identify it and then we study the tumor we look at genetics you know we we look at different types of treatment there's a lot done at the time of diagnosis, there's really never been, um, you know, enrolling and looking at healthy people, enriching this population of higher than average risk and looking at them over a long period of time, identifying, you know, this needle in the haystack and then going back and unraveling that puzzle. So it's, it's really, it's a really neat effort. It's really awesome to be a part of this. Yeah. And for um, you hear it a lot in people that have diagnosed, been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, especially like symptoms that they think back and say, oh, I did have this. I did have lower back pain or I was feeling like this, but it, it just wasn't a big enough trigger for them to do anything about it. But you hear that so much that when they think back over the past year or more that they, oh, they did have this symptom that was developing. And I think when you said roadmap, um, because everybody's symptoms are slightly different and nobody presents the same. So I think that the, just having the symptoms questionnaire is invaluable to try and, you know, I don't know, get a good grasp on, on the symptoms since they are so vague and can be attributed to so many 
different things that are not big like pancreatic cancer is. You know, you have back pain and indigestion. You're not going to automatically scan somebody because... They have back pain and indigestion or (laughs) nausea or fatigue, right? And so I think general, so general, right? So I I think it's so fascinating to me because we, in this space, I'd say, you know, we don't have a vlog. So if people listening at home, I'm pointing to myself here, you know, um, on the philanthropic side of raising awareness, but it's sometimes a struggle, right? Because we talk about symptoms and you talk about things that are just so vague. And like I was saying in a previous podcast, like we've had patients like say, Oh, I had a flutter in my stomach, you know? Right. So what's that? What are you going to do? Scan someone? Cause every time they have a flutter in their stomach. Right. So you, you can't, and you won't, you know, and, and fatigue, most people are fatigued every day, right? <laughs> right. Whether it's it, like, yeah. <laughs> kids, uh, work, uh, the seasons, right? right. Football, you know, maybe <laughs> three football team. No, no maybe if they didn't have the greatest yeah. season, no, no it's great exhausting. Season. Right, we won't bring that up. <laughs> yes, exactly. But in all seriousness, like the symptoms are just so vague. So I, my point is that these studies are so critical because the goal of raising awareness, I think, for this disease is so difficult because of the vagueness of the symptoms now there are some things like jaundice jaundice is like painless jaundice yeah Yeah, the painless jaundice right but that so late late, right as we know in the medical community not that i'm a clinician but i just know from our job typically jaundice is like the kiss of death almost you know because the patients have progressed so far along um, but so it's it, it's really fascinating to me, um, but it's also so powerful that these studies are happening and we're finding out more and more. And hopefully we do build that map at some point here in the, in the near future, I hope, and, and hopefully not too far into the future. So talk about the clinic here for a minute. The clinic opened August the 18. Two, 18. So we're about a year and a half into, right? yeah. if my math serves me right, started with zero patients. As of yesterday, how many patients are enrolled in the clinic? We're uh, around 275 and, and makes my heart just, just happy. Yeah. Yeah. But you said, you know, you mentioned earlier the success of the clinic and, and as we talk about this disease, everyone knows how difficult pancreas cancer is. And so, you know, we're not pulling anyone's teeth to participate in an effort like this. Everyone understands um, what pancreas cancer means, um, you know, and so people really are knocking down our door to be a part of this. If they read about or hear about or talk about this study and they feel like they even loosely meet criteria to participate, they're calling us, um, you know, and multiple times and faster than we can get back to them because they want to help in any way that they can. If they've lost a family member from pancreas cancer, they get it. If they carry one of these gene mutations, they get it. Um, if they've got new onset diabetes, you know, they're starting to understand what that might mean. No matter how small the percentage is, if you're part of that statistic, it's uh, very meaningful. So we, we've been overwhelmed by people in our area wanting to help with this. Well, I've always said, like, I think 
you know, naturally the families that go through it get it. Oh right? yeah. Cause they've lived through that and they don't want to live through that again. Yeah. But the power to these clinics is going to be that other, you know, like we, we've got to move the thousands of other people that potentially don't have a family history, but have a genetic mutation, you know, um, that potentially could be the disease because there's strength in numbers. Right. And you guys have had, uh, you know, from afar and because of our relationship with Nebraska, I would say we do a lot in the state of Nebraska and Nebraskans have been very good to project purple. So thank you to all the Nebraskans as I look at three here <laughs> right in front of me, but in, in, you know, for those listening at home that live in the state of Nebraska, it's been a pleasure to, to do work in there and the teams there have been awesome to work with. So thank you guys for all you're doing. And I know the media has been a, a great help as well. I know a lot of the media outlets have kind of jumped on in terms of the clinic and sharing various stories of patients and the clinicians and Dr. Clutie's been on TV, Dr. Hollingsworth's been on TV quite a bit. So it's really fascinating to see like the, the whole state kind of rally around it, at least from afar. That's what I see, you know, social media has a way of, of doing that. I think a little bit, what are you guys seeing? Is there anything, you know, in a year and a half, which is really a short period of time, um, but it's a big number, 275. Is there anything that you guys are seeing that is really like, and I, I'm going to go around to all three of you, um, that really kind of is interesting? Um, you know, I think the most interesting thing that I've seen so far is just um, the amount of people impacted by this disease. When you put it out there, um, people sort of come out of the woodwork and say, you know, I have one, two, three family members who've had pancreatic cancer. And there's a long list of these people. I had, you know, um, my mom and my dad were diagnosed and passed away from pancreas cancer, you know, and, and there's not just one or two of those. It's, yeah, it, there's a lot. And so that's, what's been, um, I've been most surprised by, I guess. And I think maybe that goes with anything. When you start to talk about it, you realize, yeah, who has all been impacted by it. It's early in the study. So a lot of people we've seen once a lot of people we've seen, you know, two or three times. Um, so it's hard to, to pull anything out yet. Um, and I always tell everyone, and we talked about symptoms earlier, really be focused on what you're feeling and reporting in terms of symptoms. It may not make sense right now as we ask you today, you know, over these next 10 minutes, but as we collect this over a long period of time, this may really build a picture that makes sense to us. So um, in terms of what we're finding, maybe not so much because it's early yet, but yeah. um which is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the patient population, because we haven't seen anyone get sick. Right. right. Suzanne, have you seen anything? I mean, I know well, you're the newest to the team, so this is a little of a hard question, a loaded question. Um, well, um, as far as like our participants go, um, I've been amazed at... Um, I mean, we have people in that don't like needles, that get woozy with blood draws, um, that we have to lay down sometimes. Pre I mean, and it's, they come in and they you guys don't, all have those reclining chairs. That oh, we do. Do. I thought you guys do. We, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think those are I, necessary. Yeah. I, think I, mean, I did that when I was there. That's so motivated to, to do it anyway. And I know that there's been a, a few people that, um, have come on, I know from our diabetes cohort that don't have a family history, but maybe they have, they're like, they have friends or connected some way with pancreatic cancer. And they're, I mean, just the motivation from our participants to, to help. 
Awesome. Kirsten? Um, I know you in the lab. Yeah, so I was you, like, Everything well, looks the same. Well, on the lab side. <laughs> you um, have a lot more blood to yeah. freeze. One thing like we're, I think we're pretty excited about on the lab side is um, cell-free DNA, um, which is a form of a liquid biopsy. So we're using blood to try to um, look for that mutational marker that might be like kind of popping up in your blood. Um, and that's something that, you know, we're excited that possibly as people might show a symptom that we're concerned about or they're getting a scan on their clinical care um, that we might pull those patients blood samples and and kind of just start to look at them and, and see if anything shows up. Um, and we parallel that with patients that do actually have pancreatic cancer and running those as well. So I'm, you know, that's exciting um, happening in the lab, you know, with the blood samples. Um, but yeah, as these patients keep coming, you know, we keep building on that. Well, I was just going just to, the one thing that I think is very exciting just to see in the on the clinical side, working with Christina, uh, she is a DMP, so she does have like a higher training and just the, how she really helps people. We do get people that call in. We've had um, calls from all over the country of people that don't come to Omaha are not going to be able to come to Omaha, but that she has um, given them the right direction to go in and ease some people's minds, I think. And, you know, you have this family history. Well, you need to go see a genetic counselor. You need to, you know, find someone in locally in your area that um, screens, you know, screens high risk people. And um, I think that's really exciting too. Just that we're able to help people kind of in a clinical way as well, even though we're on the research side. Yeah, and to add on that, I guess is that you know, two things. We do get calls from all over the country. Well, that's what I was going to ask, like, where yeah. is the patient population? Most from? of it's Omaha, from, you know, our region, you know, is. our region. But we we have people like flying in on their own dime from mm. Florida, you know, and other parts of the country be, because they because they want to yeah. and because this is important and it's feasible for them. And so that's really, really incredible. And then, yeah, we do talk to people where it's maybe not so feasible, but this sort of this is why we're so excited to be here and be in New York and be here with Proceed because we're not the only people in this space, right? Yeah. University of Nebraska, we're not the only ones doing this. Everyone is so tapped into this and to come together with all of these other centers for Proceed. Um, you know, if someone calls me from, you know, 10 states away, I can say, you know, what's happening in your there, space? Is there 10 states away from Nebraska? <laughs> Five. I, we, we've got to keep facts. Like, yeah, we got to keep facts. Yeah, you know, like, okay, it's not international, but no, okay. if you're going south, yeah. then, so, right, maybe you're going a long way. Like, yeah. So, but it, I can tell them, you know, you you don't you maybe you can't come to Omaha every six months, but somebody near you is doing something yeah. in the pancreas cancer space, and so reach out. And that's that's what's so great about being here because everyone on the patient side to all of these multidisciplinary providers gets pancreas cancer. And so we're all trying to like, in whatever way that we each can come together, collaborate and try to figure this out. Well, I think that's something with the whole community though, you know, if we take a step back and something that we've been really, I think it's been kind of part of our foundation at Project Purple, uh, not to get boring with some details of how we started, but, you know, originally 
like our logo was every hue of purple. And the reason being that it looks a lot different now for a variety of reasons, um, not because of what I'm going to say, but because of just printing and, and, and putting that on apparel just became very difficult. But the original foundation of the reason for that was that we realized we weren't going to be the group. But we knew there were strength in numbers and we've always been about collaboration, you know, and that's something that we have kind of embraced and stay one that, you know, we can fund a project or projects that can bring everyone to the table. Um, and I think if you look at what Precede has become, it's 34 centers worldwide. There's six international partners and, you know, Nebraska quite honestly, wasn't part of the original discussion, but because of our work and because of all the great things that you guys are doing there, I wanted you guys and part of that. I said, I, but Project Purple. And, you know, I, I think identifying, you know, other partners as well in that mix. And what originally started Precede was only supposed to be about 20 centers. You know, it now has grown. And I think there's a waiting list, quite honestly. I think we've had to say like, hey, you know, we've got to kind of set up a bar here. And, you know, before we started recording, as we were talking, you know, with our previous guest here about like how fascinating it's going to be because there's centers, you know, that have 275. There's other centers that have maybe 60 or maybe centers that are just starting. And this collaborative effort of sharing ideas, you know, what you guys are doing in Nebraska may work really well here in New York or out in Oregon or in San Diego or quite frankly in Chicago you know, which is not that far. So it's really exciting. I think there's some really cool things happening, not just, uh, you know, here at Proceed, but what you guys are doing in Nebraska. So it's, it's kind of awesome for me. I get kind of, I've always said Nebraska is kind of like my second home, um, uh, from home, but it's cool to see, you know, you guys here and to hear about all the great things that are happening there in Nebraska. Um, you know, in, in particular with early detection, I've got a question that came up from Kirsten for Kirsten, I should say. Put you in the spot here for a second. Thanks. <laughs> so with all this blood that you guys are banking, I mean, 275 patients is a lot of patients. Yeah. yeah. So every six months. Every six every months. Every six months, 100 mils of blood. <laughs> so are you guys already doing things in the lab? I know you mentioned the, I think it was the RNA stuff. Uh, Self-read DNA. Self-read yeah. DNA. And I know there's been talk and I've seen studies about, you know, taking you know, healthy patients and juicing T cells in there and then putting that into a sick patient to yeah. potentially like uh, almost like an immunotherapy yeah, yeah. stuff. So are there, are there benefits clearly of having all that blood there of healthy patients? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, like we say this all the time that we're going to have, you know, a handful of patients throughout the study that'll develop pancreatic cancer. Um, or some other type of cancer, you know, we've, that we followed. Um, but there's going to be a, a lot of healthy controls, right? And, but you need those healthy controls to really validate the test that you're having um, to prove that, you know, it isn't just um, a fluke and to validate that you get that sensitivity and specificity involved. Um, so, yeah, all of those healthy controls are, you know, important as well to to validate the assays that we might be using for pink to to test for pancreatic cancer so this is something that came up the last time i was in nebraska a couple of weeks ago i had a meeting with christina and 
Suzanne, along with Dr. Kelsey, and we talked about this subject that I want to bring up and, and Kirsten just validates it. I think a lot of times people think like, oh, getting involved involves money and involves time. I mean, here we are asking for a little bit of your time, but we're asking for blood and how yeah. critical that blood component is or filling out an essay or a questionnaire every six months about how your life is, is so critical to advancing the science. Yeah. Where I think sometimes people think like, oh, I can't get involved because it involves dollars and cents. Yeah, it's really their time. I mean, for them, it it takes, and it does, it takes a little time from them coming every six months, but. But if that's, that's all that's it, it involves, <laughs> yeah, that's and, it. We're and, asking, yeah, and we're not asking you to run a marathon, we're not asking <laughs> you to solicit your friends, uh, we're not asking you to get involved in an event or put on a gala, all you have to do is, you know, take some time out of yeah. your schedule to provide blood and meet with a counselor and our nurse and, and talk about what's going on. That's so critical. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things, we're not asking for a lot. I guess right. Right. Point yeah, exactly. Right? exactly. Yeah. The, the first visit when we see people, we do spend time with them to talk to them about the study, make sure they're eligible, make sure they understand what it means to participate. Um, we want to make sure we're thorough there. Um, but then when we see them for the first time, it takes about 45 minutes. And then every six months, it takes 15, 20 minutes. And so, um, but yeah, like I said earlier. So an hour a year out of someone's yeah. busy schedule is all it takes. Yeah, yeah. And then that's the first year. Second year? Every six months, it's about 15, 20 minutes. So we're talking so, about yeah. 30 to 40 minutes. Unless yeah. we get You're chatty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get to know people and it's great to see people again and they're yeah. always happy to see us. Yeah. And we have some people that come as family groups that they, yeah. they all come together. together. You know, some of them maybe live in smaller towns around Omaha, so they get together and it's like at every six month lunch yeah. for them too. So it's... So we're building family, like vacation, not vacation. <laughs> little little mini reunions yeah, every six months. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. You guys uh, mentioned, you know, there's been a vast variety of people that have been in the clinic. Um, and one that I want to bring up because um, it is kind of, there is a there is some buzz in the, in the pancreatic cancer community is this diabetes cohort. Mm -hmm. So let's talk briefly about the diabetes and what that looks like. I mean, family history is pretty obvious. So if you have someone um, that has the disease and then naturally genetics, if you know you have a certain genetic mutation, that is a higher risk for pancreatic cancer. But diabetes, I think, is something that, you know, is common. There's a lot of diabetics, but this is a little bit different. So let's talk a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah. So we, when we talk about this new onset of type 2 diabetes, um, you know, the statistic we um, talk about is uh, particularly for individuals over the age of 50, 1% of people newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes have that diabetes because of an underlying pancreas cancer, not because of insulin resistance. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who are newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. 1% is maybe, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're part of that 1%, it's a game changer. 
right? And so, um, you you when you go back and ask, you see this a lot where diabetes is maybe almost even the first symptom because there aren't any other symptoms of pancreas cancer. So, a new onset of diabetes or worsening diabetes for someone who's already been diagnosed, you know, longer term. Um, and then maybe a year or two later, we find the pancreas cancer. And so, we are trying to pay attention to that patient population and inviting, um, you know, those people to participate in this study to look at their blood. Um, but it's not on their radar so much pancreas cancer. And when someone has a new diagnosis of diabetes, you don't necessarily want to scare them with that. Um, but it is important to pay attention to. So, so are you guys working with endocrinologist or diabetes clinic yeah. there in Omaha? We have one, two, two endocrinologists that are involved in the study. Dr. Brian Borner um, from endocrinology and Dr. Vijay Shivaswamy. They're two, you know, critical pieces to this puzzle. They're on our protocol. They've um, been, um, yeah, just, you know, keys to this as well and to getting those patients uh, on board and, and in, you know, we're doing one other blood test for that cohort specifically, diving a little bit deeper into their blood um, with something called a mixed meal tolerance test to try to tease out this type of diabetes from pancreas cancer um, and how it's different from other types of diabetes. So, uh, yeah, we're this is definitely a multidisciplinary effort. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important point for all of this is just. You know, it's a big team effort as far as, like we said, we have the endocrinologist, we have the geneticist or the genetic counselor, I guess, um, you know, and the research side and the oncologist and gastroenterologist, yeah, gastroenterology, oncologist, medical oncologist. Yeah. So it's a big team. You know, it takes a lot um, from everyone, I guess. This is a loaded question. And with the diabetes cohort that you have already, have you found a genetic mutation as well within that population? Do you know? Um, I don't think that a lot of that cohort um, has had genetic testing. You know, genetic testing, that whole game is changing like rapidly over time. But I think that for that to be feasible for people, you, you need to fit into the guidelines, yeah. uh, meet the guidelines to to, under, to have that blood so test. So unless they're fitting the guidelines, like right. they have a, a family history of cancer. Right. Yeah. And a lot of these people are coming without that, without, just this new yeah. onset of diabetes. Which is scary. Mm -hmm. Really scary. Second to last question, because I know Suzanne is eager <laughs> to, uh, to get to the Nick game tonight. <laughs> Where do you guys each see the clinic in five years? Yeah, that's a, great, a loaded question, uh, yeah. but you know, I like I, it. I like that I question. I, uh, I think we're all so forward thinking and this is growing and it's happening so fast that it's a, it's a great question. I think for me, I see on, cause there's two sides of this right now at the university of Nebraska, at least, um, there's this research side where we're enrolling people, we're collecting blood. We're trying to figure this out in terms of a, a blood marker and pay attention to symptoms. And then there's the clinical side of care where we're scanning them or having endoscopic ultrasounds. They're having genetic testing. That's all on the clinical side of care. Um, so for me in the future, I would love to see those two collide just a little bit more um, and, and be one big, you know, one space where you can do it all in one, 
visit. Which takes money. Yeah, yeah. And resources, which I think, you know, Nebraska, there's some current legislation that's yeah. on the table yeah. that hopefully will help you guys that we would love to mimic in other states. Uh, intent. But uh, for those listening at home who don't know, uh, there was a state senator who lost his wife. And there's been some pretty prominent people in the state of Nebraska, unfortunately, that have passed. The president of Union Pacific passed away. Right. I know his family's right. been heavily involved. Yeah. Uh, an oncologist there at the university, uh, Jim Armitage, lost his, his wife. wife. Yeah. So currently there's a, a legislative bill which would equal about $30 million to pancreatic cancer research. Right. Which is amazing. Yeah. Half from the state and then half from private funding. Right. Um, but it's it's a very interesting concept um, that I think can be emulated in all seriousness to other parts of the country and other states and other universities. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about that here at Precede, a little bit about what we're doing in the state of Connecticut, because we've already started to work on some stuff similarly from really the inspiration of Senator Coulterman. Yeah. And I've got to know Senator Coulterman quite a bit just from... <clears throat> meeting him a couple times at the university and then talking to him over the phone. So it's kind of fascinating, you know, the whole full, you know, we were talking about like this, how this all kind of comes around and there's always talk about how big this community is, but then how small it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we could all collectively work together, it's amazing what we can accomplish. Suzanne, where do you see the clinic in five years? Um, well, I being the newest person, so this is kind of a loaded question. Yes. Well, um, I absolutely agree with Christina's statement. Also, um, I mean, I think it would be wonderful if it, we were able to branch it out and reach more people at different sites. Because right now we're only seeing people at the main campus on UNMC. Um, and so that does get, um, I mean, you have to be able to come there. You have to be, you know, or Monday through Friday. It's not, you know, it'd be nice to branch out to where people in, you know, Western Nebraska can go to their clinic and get the same thing done there. And we just can reach more people. Yeah, I think that, that would be my, my goal, my shining hope. Well, I think for the listeners at home that don't know Nebraska, I mean, it takes about 10 hours to go from east to west, which is a little bit. And I think the one challenge that you guys experience is like access to care. I know I've talked to people yeah. about this um, there in the state that a lot of times people are flown in or transplant. I'm sure you guys dealt with this a lot where, yep. you know, if it's going to even Denver, like how that process is, which is like 12 hours, I think, to get to Denver, 10 it's to 12 10, hours, 10, 10 yeah. hours, right? So there's still people living in that western part of the state that so the access i think for here in new england you know within two hours you can hop on either a train you can drive you can be in a major medical center where in nebraska right. it's a little bit different and also other parts of the midwest i mean you guys get people from iowa yeah um and the dakotas yeah. that come down right yes. so um it's really that access to care which is critical yeah. And there's been interest in all parts of the state. Um, people reaching out to us, they see what we're doing. They want to be a part of it. They want to start a site. Yeah. Um, so I think Suzanne's right. I mean, hopefully over the next five years, those things will happen. Spread out. Kirsten, what do you see in five years from your end? Um, you know, I, I really hope that within the next five years, we start to see our efforts paying off as far as that we're following the right cohorts um, and the right people. And um, 
not that I, I hope anyone gets this disease, but like, I really do hope that within the next five years, like we see people showing the symptoms that we're expecting. Um, and, and that we do have some people that develop the disease to really validate that we're following the right people. And, um, you know, we can start doing the tests that we want to run as far as like looking at the blood and going back, um, those couple years before, um, and that sort of a thing. So, you know, that's going to be really exciting. And, and, you know, it might not be that they develop pancreatic cancer. We might have these patients that develop some other type of cancer or, um, disease. Actually, we, we had somebody on study and soon after they got on study, they developed, was it colon cancer? Rectal, yeah. Rectal, Rectal cancer. cancer. And, and they had to come off study, but you know, if we would have been able to follow that even a year before, how interesting for somebody, um, studying rectal cancer, you know, um, in the same regard for us. So I'm excited for that and really just see our efforts pay off, um, that, you know, all this work we're doing and having patients come every six months, um, and see where that gets us. Well, we, we know with a lot of cancer screening saves lives, right? So, yeah. you know, to yeah. your point, like early to see, detection. yeah, early detection, which we don't have, but to see patients get the disease, well, guess what? We're going to get to them early, right? right. We're not going to oh, get yeah. people at a stage right. four or stage three. I mean, cause if they see, some, you know, if they're in the clinic with our nurses, you know, going through that questionnaire and like one of the nurses says, oh, like, you know, you're really thinking about it and you do think you have something that was off. They're going to say, oh, maybe you should go back to your primary care. And I think you've already seen that. Yeah, we have. We have. That's interesting. We have seen patients who, you know, have had a 10 pound unintentional weight loss coupled with back pain, loss of appetite, bloating, um, you know, things like that. And so we're like, hey, um, you need to get to your primary care physician. And so um, this particular individual did and, and, you know, had a little bit of a workup routed to GI, which um, they couldn't get into for a couple of months. Um, And we said, that's not okay. And so we're in that, we're right there. And so where those types and everything ended up being okay, but better safe than sorry, right? They're they're plugged in here. And so we're not letting things get too far. But I think you're right. If we find anything, it's going to be earlier right. and that'll yeah. be better for the patient, um, you know, cause we right. like the whole goal, I mean, because we think earlier detection will help increase survival and, you know, and that sort of a thing. So yeah, if we do think if we find something, it's going to be better for the patient cause it will be earlier. Yeah. It, that is, um, it is cool to see. It's exciting. The people that, I mean, we've had people that we just, um, that really do need screening that have like a big history and never knew what yeah. to do about it or um, had a lot of anxiety and just very scared of developing the disease, but just kind of sit, they don't know what to do. They don't know who to talk to. Um, I think we plug people into the right, right spaces. It helps it be to. more of a little bit of a one-stop shop where we can direct them to yeah, genetics. Yeah, we're not just gathering and, information. I yeah, kind of, yeah I we don't. Like it's, it's, um, I'm still helping people as yeah. a nurse. I'm not yeah. just being a information. Yeah, direct them to where we think they need need it if, if they need to see a specialist for something. Well, it's so powerful, right? Because at the end of the day, um, I think to move the needle, we have to get to patients in terms of survival, right? And that's what yeah. this ultimate goal is, is to find, you know, to raise survival rates, to find a cure. And, and these are the things that are going to be done to do that. Um, so 
I applaud you guys and thank you guys for doing that. Um, last question and probably the most important question is whether it's in Nebraska or someone who lives in LA, how do they find out more about what you guys are doing in Nebraska and how does someone get involved with the clinic? What's the best way? Um, I think for UNMC specifically, I think the easiest, fastest, most direct route to get plugged in is to call Suzanne or I. Um, we both, we all three of us actually share an office. Um, and so we share a line and you can reach us at 402-559-1577. Um, that's not like to, you know, anyone but us. It's a straight line to us and, and we'll start the the process and get the ball rolling. Awesome. I would, I'm going to make a suggestion. I think I'm going to make this suggestion to everyone tomorrow or Monday at the meeting. And this is going to air post, but we've got to get you guys on Twitter. Like you guys should have your own Twitter, Twitter handle. <laughs> I know UNMC has it, but I got to talk to the powers to be. At Kelsey, Kelsey, yeah. has, a Twitter, Kelsey right? has Twitter. Dr. Cludy has Twitter, but you guys for the clinic, I think should really have your own kind of social media. And even if it's Twitter. And I say Twitter because you know, there's been a lot of talk. We've had a lot of people on the podcast in the medical community that are very active on Twitter. And it seems like that has become the vertical for communicating with patients, with other clinicians. It's really fascinating to me. And that's like one of the benefits of social media. There's a lot of negatives, especially nowadays uh, with what's going on politically and socially. But um, it, I think it has done some great things for the pancreatic cancer oh, community. Yeah. So. I mean, even for our study, I think at AACR, Kelsey's like poster was about social media and yeah. how people have found us. And we, I mean, we keep track of like the nurses keep track of like how people found us through a Facebook post or, um, you know, a news story or whatever. So social media is spreads this word so fast. Got to get you guys on there. <laughs> we'll work on it. I'll, I'll talk to the powers to be. That conversation maybe, a, maybe Tony will get it. That's a, that's a different conversation. If it comes yeah. to me, it's a different conversation, right? Versus you guys asking me. Yeah. yeah true. Our tech can do it. There you go. Very, yeah. Computer. We can have her do that for us. Awesome stuff. Well, ladies, thank you for coming to New York, for being part of the Precede Consortium. Thank you guys for all you do. Well, we're excited. And as we always say on the Project Purple podcast, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Thank you.